Well, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. Is this working, Ray? Sounds like, okay. I'm getting hand signals. Matthew chapter 23. Now, we're going to complete our look this morning at Jesus' exposure of the false worship and holiness of these spiritual leaders. And sadly, as we're reminded throughout the ministry of Jesus, these apostate leaders, these spiritually dead leaders of the nation of Israel. Now, as I mentioned before, these three woes in verses 23 through 28 address the very essence of their hypocrisy. They get to the very heart of the issue out of which everything else in their ministry and in their lives flowed. And of course, it's not just the leaders that are exposed, but also the nation who was influenced by them and who followed them ultimately even in their Rejection of their own Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But then again, it's not only the nation who is being exposed, but every person who maintains some degree of a religious life and yet remains unconverted and dead in sin. This, of course, is a reality that God addresses repeatedly throughout His Word and that Jesus addressed directly and repeatedly throughout the Gospels as He revealed himself and God's will and God's plan to this religious nation. The words that we're probably most familiar with come at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when he said that many will stand before him on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things in your name? And they will only hear on that terrible day, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. And when we come to the parables in Matthew chapter 25, we are going to be confronted with a similar situation. Those who have received opportunity and yet failed to fully embrace their God and His salvation. Now despite these warnings, these leaders and again much of the nation remained hardened in their sin. And all of their religious exercises were one thing that they did not display or have was a heart of true worship or a heart of true holiness. They did not have a love for their God. Now, as mentioned last week, at the heart of knowing God is a heart of worship marked by holiness. It is repeated in the Old Testament that God's people are called to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness or in holy array. Sometimes that phrase is used to refer to the people to come to Him in garments of holiness, as it were, and at other times it's used to refer to their delight in the beauty of God and in the beauty of His holiness. But holiness marks worship. And worship is, at its essence, the response of the whole person to all that God is and all that God has revealed Himself to be. It is a response to God. And again, it is has at its center holiness, a heart and life set apart to the Lord in loving faith, adoration, and obedience. Now these are the things that are true of a believer, but they can also be masked over, they can be hidden, they can be concealed, and they can be used as instruments to conceal an unconverted and an unregenerate heart. So how do we discern the difference? Well, this is what Jesus addressed last week in regard to worship. And this week he will in regards to holiness. Read with me. Beginning in verse 23 of Matthew chapter 23. And we'll read down to verse 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence, you blind Pharisee. First, clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too, outwardly, appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." Now, last week we noted in regards to their false understanding of worship that these are leaders who, knowing the Old Testament, are yet blind ultimately to their God and to His requirement. And at the very center of their error and spiritual blindness in relation to worship was their disproportionate view of God's heart, of, that they didn't understand the things that God truly loved because they did not truly love their God. That is to say that while they were diligent in their desire to obey God's command to tithe, which again, Jesus does not criticize them for, though they went beyond what the Old Testament required, they failed to pay heed to what Jesus says are the weightier provisions or the weightier matters of the law, which specifically was love to their neighbor. And this failure to love their neighbor was manifest then by their failure to display, as Jesus says, a heart of justice, a heart of faithfulness, and a heart of mercy. And this was, again, utterly inexcusable, for God had addressed this very issue and had this indictment against His people throughout the history of Israel, who very often, and really throughout most of their history, were never negligent in the external performance to some degree of their religion, but they were often negligent in a heart of the heart behind that religious duty, a heart of love for God. And so here they were diligent in these minutiae, but their heart was far from him, and it was displayed in their failure to love their neighbor. Secondly, we noted that Jesus focuses here on the second half of the Decalogue. Why? Because it is the truest expression of the motive of the heart. In other words, it's easy to be diligent in these external aspects of religion because those ultimately don't reveal the motive of the heart. They can be done with diligence and yet with the motivation of complete wickedness. However, when it comes to Loving your brethren, when it comes to loving your neighbor, that is different. And it is a truer expression of the motor of a transformed heart, of a love for God. So how does one have a better test of whether they truly love God with all their soul, strength, and mind? It is by whether they love their neighbor as their self. Matter of fact, John the Apostle will put it this way in his epistle, 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. So true worship and love for God includes these actions commanded by God, every action commanded by God, but it's most demonstrated in the command to love one another. Now Jesus is going to take it down yet another layer, and he's going to address the issue of holiness, of holiness. 
Look back at verse 25. Verse 25, and this is their false understanding of holiness. He says here that you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Again, in the first indictment, Jesus confronts these leaders essentially for what they did not do. They did not exercise justice and mercy and faithfulness. Here he is condemning them for what they do do, and yet it is something that is hidden. It is something of their heart. What they do do is they delight in wickedness and not in their God. Now to understand this, let's first consider the religious paradigm that they functioned within. And let me note first here that they had a ceremony and external prescriptions that were, there were ceremonial and external prescriptions that were a part of Israelite religion. Now we've noticed this before, but let's look at it here in relation to what is clean and what is unclean. Now the law made a distinction between the clean and the unclean. Now these ranged from every, everything in the animal kingdom to what chews the cud or splits the hoof and so on to what types of insects and birds were clean or unclean to whether somebody came in contact with blood or not to whether somebody came in contact with a dead body or not to women's menstrual cycles to a period of uncleanness after giving birth to those who had a skin disease or were cleansed of a skin disease and so on and so forth. There was a distinction in the law between what was clean and what was unclean. Moreover, there was also then a prescription for purification, for being moved from the state of unclean to a state of being clean. The items for the worship in the tabernacle were to be washed and handled in a particular way and later those items for the temple so that they could be cleaned for use in the exercise of the worship of the God of Israel. The symbolic element by which something was cleansed was water and it pictured purity. So for example, the people were to wash their garments uh, with water before offering or for their sacrifice being offered. Or excuse me, the people were to wash their garments, for example, when they approached uh, the Mount Sinai. They were to come to Him clean as a holy people. They were to wash the entrails and parts of the animal sacrifice before it was offered up by the priest to represent the cleanliness of that sacrifice being offered to God. There was in the outside of the actual tabernacle or the temple area a great basin of water which was used for these ritual cleansing and these purifications with water and so the priests could wash their hands and their feet also before entering the tabernacle in other words all of these items through the application of the symbolic element of water they were made clean and therefore worship was made acceptable to God and they could participate in all of the temple practices and those who were a part of the covenant people of God could maintain their fellowship and their community with them We see this even a bit more extreme in the example of the Essenes where they took daily washings of their body. Uh, It was not a baptism, but it was a daily washing of their body that made them cleansed and able to participate in the community life of the Essene community. And here we come then into Matthew 23 with the Pharisaical practice. He says, you cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish." 
And again, this is a reference to their fastidious observance of ritual cleansing, which they applied primarily in two areas. One in the washing of hands and the other in the washing of dishes and utensils. Now, it's hard to know exactly how the development of the washing with hands or all of their ritual prescriptions uh, developed, but it is clear that as with other aspects of the law, what they essentially did is they extended the concept of purity. They extended the concept of purity. So in other words, if it was necessary to wash hands before eating dedicated foods or before duty in the temple, it logically extended then that they should wash their hands before all meals so that all of life is dedicated to God and represented uh, as being committed to His holiness. In the washing of dishes and utensils, this also followed the same logic. In Leviticus eleven thirty three through 30. 34, God commanded his people then to wash household vessels. Let me just read that to you so you can hear it. He says, As for any earthenware vessel into which any one of them may fall, whatever is in it becomes unclean, and you shall break the vessel. He says in verse 34, Any of the food which may be eaten on which water comes shall become unclean, and any liquid which may be drunk in every vessel shall become unclean. And he goes on there. And what he's doing is saying that any vessel that comes into contact with something unclean is then to be washed with water and it is to be made clean. And so here they extended that then to every element that they used for their meals. Now, there was a discussion among the rabbinic schools of Shammai and Hillel, and I won't repeat to you this very long and repetitive discussion that went on between these two rabbinic schools, and it was regarding whether the outside of the dish, if an unclean outside of the dish made what was in the dish or cup unclean, or, and therefore whether they had to wash both the outside and the inside, or if they could only wash one part of it, and then the whole thing would be clean. And it goes on with that kind of meticulous detail, uh, item after item. Now, it's not likely then that Jesus is entering into this debate. It's not likely that he's taking sides between Shammai or Hillel. Jesus' point is much more clear than that and much beyond that. He's moving past their petty discussions to make the simple point that a person, just like a vessel, is clean only when it is clean on the outside and the inside. In other words, those two things cannot be separated. It's wrong to make that kind of distinction. The whole thing, the whole person, must be cleansed and made clean. In other words, he's using their ritual of washing to make a point about the whole person. Now, what was behind all of this? What was behind all of it was the holiness of God. The holiness of God. Listen to me as I read once again from Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 through 45. And this is after he's given some of the instructions that I read earlier. He says this in verse 44. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm the earth. Again, why? For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy." In other words, all of this then was to be a demonstration then of the holiness of God. The holiness of God. 
All of their practices, no matter how minute in detail, had one point at which they were pushing towards, at which they were illustrating, and that is that God is holy and that He will be treated as holy. Now, as you would read through Leviticus, that distinction between unclean and clean essentially represented the wholeness or the completeness or the perfection of God. In other words, that God was whole and complete and perfect and separated from all that was unclean and all that is sinful and all that is bearing the effects of sin. And so he was only to be presented with that which was clean and whole and perfect and pure. In other words, so therefore, like a deformed or a maimed person could not serve in the temple. Why? Because their defect represented an unwhole condition. And so they weren't allowed to serve in the temple because that in that way diminished the holiness of God. And as was mentioned earlier, if something came into contact with dead people or animals, they were not allowed to participate in that worship. Why? Because they were in contact and not yet cleansed of that which represented the consequences of sin, that which was dead. And so it goes. Now these external ceremonies and requirements were not meant as an end in themselves. But as I said, they were meant to reflect deeper spiritual realities. In other words, the overall impact of this was, again, to be reminded that God is to be treated as holy. He is not common. He is not profane. And therefore, when He is approached, He must be approached with a holy reverence. Now, rightly understood, these ceremonies and these rituals then would have had a very humbling effect on the heart of the worshiper. It should have produced a sense of sober reverence, even a fear of God that should have extended to all of life as they were constantly reminded that He is holy. Now, there is a sense in which the Pharisees understood that all of these rituals that they had were of a different nature than moral purity. They understood that there was a ritualistic aspect to them. And yet it was so bound to their concept of holiness that these became inextricably tied to their total idea of holiness. Indeed, they were necessary then to be holy to God. And so they saw this all as one package, although they did recognize that ritualistic purity and moral purity did have a different emphasis to God. And yet these kind of religious matters and observance were not at the heart of the law. And they should have understood that more deeply. They should have understood that more truly. It's not at the heart of what God required from His people. So what was their error? Well, their error was this. It wasn't, well, let me say what it wasn't. Their error was not simply in that they added some of these extra things like washing hands. You could say that, but that wasn't really what Jesus was getting at. If you want to add the extra thing of washing hands, for some, that probably could be done in a sincere devotion to the Lord. That, in and of itself, was not uh, the problem. And that's not precisely what he is addressing. What he's addressing is this that all of these things became a substitute for holiness of the heart. That's what he's addressing. That's what he's addressing. Or put another way, the external aspects of their religion became disconnected from the realities of their heart. And that was the problem. They lived within a ritualistic context for the expression of their worship to God. God himself commanded it. 
But the problem was is that they took all of those things that God commanded and they made it separate. Indeed, they even exalted them above the worship and the affections of their heart and the reality of the purity of their heart. And so Jesus is essentially exposing this, that religion is not about what you do. It's not about what you do on the outside. It is about what you love and what you long for. In other words, external holiness is rather easy to maintain. And external religious life is rather easy to maintain because the heart is hidden from the eyes of men. But it's not hidden from God. And He reminds us of that here. He knows the thoughts and the intentions of the heart and that is precisely what He is concerned about. Let's look at this then a little more closely at what He exposes here in their false view of holiness. It is that they rested satisfied in the acts and not the attitude. So Jesus is addressing then that disparity. That disparity between what they do on the outside and who they are on the inside. Look at what he repeats. In verse 25, you clean the outside, but the inside is not consistent with what you do. Verse 27, you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but inside you are something different. In verse 26, backing up, he commands them, you need to clean the inside and then the outside will match up with what is holy. Verse 28, you outwardly appear to be one thing, but inwardly you are something else. In other words, there's outside, inside, outside, inside, externally, internally. They're inconsistent. They don't match. Outwardly, they were dedicated then to ritual cleanness, And they appeared beautiful before men, but inwardly they were full of greed, self-indulgence, hypocrisy, and lawlessness. And so again, the point is simply this, that the religious hypocrite is not what he appears to be. There is an external appearance of holiness that's not matched with internal realities. You could put it this way, and we'll build on this later, that... Though they pursued religious dedication on the outside, they were not fighting sin on the inside. Rather, they were indulging it. They were indulging it. And again, it's possible to maintain an outwardly righteous and respectable life while internally remaining in love with self, ungodly desires, or the things of this world. Thus, while maintaining an impeccable external life, they willfully neglected the reality of their heart and they silenced any accusation of their conscience with the hands of their religion, with the duties and the activities of their religion. In other words, they entertained the most vile kinds of wickedness in their heart with little pangs of conscience because they rested in their external duty. So they washed cups and they washed dishes, but inside they were full of greed and self-indulgence. Greed here has the root idea of seizure and robbery. It even can have the implication of violence. We won't turn there, but in Luke 20, 47, he accuses these leaders of devouring widows' houses. In other words, taking advantage of those whom you should be caring for, whom you should be meeting their needs, upholding and supporting, and yet they abused them and they manipulated them and they used them for their own advantage and gain. They were greedy. They were... Self-indulgent, self-indulgent. This term is used one other time in 1 Corinthians 7, 5. And actually there it refers to 
lack of self-control. The term actually means lack of self-control. There it's lack of self-control in relation to sexual matters. And that may be what he's implying here, that they had immoral inner lives, and that would match what he said in the sermon, that it's not that you don't commit adultery, it is that you're pure on the inside, that you don't lust for women who are not your wife. But in either case, the term here it could even be more broadly applied and refer to any sinful desire indulged with little or no restraint. That's the idea. You lack self-control. You give in to whatever you feel like on the inside. And so Jesus rebuked them for this kind of duplicity. Look just briefly at Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 where he makes this even more explicit. In Mark chapter 7, at the very beginning, of course the context is these external rituals of these leaders. He says in verse 3, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. He again gives them that familiar rebuke that they honor him with their lips, but their heart is far from him. We looked at that in Isaiah 29. But then he says in verse 14, he, he gets to the heart of the issue. He says, after he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. Verse 17, and when he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? They were so ingrained with this religious system that was really a hard concept in many ways for them to understand. He said to them, do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated? Verse 20, and he was saying to them, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of, his heart, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. And notice what he says there. These are sins both of attitude and sins of actual acts and deeds. All of those things are what flow out of the heart of man. In other words, you cannot control these things by your mere rituals, nor can you overcome them by the mere external duties of religion. Jesus again rebukes them then for this duplicity, and yet it is what marked them as teachers of God. And sadly, this is what often marks false teachers or I should say what always marks false teachers. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Just listen. As he's unveiling the character of these times that are coming and indeed now are in large measure. Of those who will have a form of godliness but deny its power. And he says in verse 4 that they will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness although they have denied its power. In other words, they have a form of godliness. They have some external 
form of religion, and yet they have no spiritual power within them to overcome the corruptions of their own heart, to overcome their sin. Rather, they indulge it. They delight in it. They feed it. That's precisely what Jesus will say to the masses again who will stand before him on that day who have religion but not righteousness. He said, you practice lawlessness by your religion. Now as a footnote here, by way of reminder, we would not want to fail to miss the omniscience of God, the nature of God that is here being exposed. He knows exactly what is in the heart and we do well to walk always with that remembrance. That he knows, as he says in Genesis 6-5, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And he knows that in the unregenerate, they are only evil continually. And I want you to notice just briefly here the depth of that knowledge. It is not to say that God merely knows our deeds, nor is it to say that God merely knows our thoughts as though he can record them. It is to say he knows what is behind all of that, the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. He knows why we think and do and feel and pursue the things that we do. His knowledge is perfect and there is no escaping him and it certainly cannot be hidden behind religious deeds. You should mark maybe in your notes Hebrews 4.12 which reminds us, one, that everything is open and lay bare before the eyes of Him we have to do. And that this omniscient God has revealed what He knows in His holy word because Scripture also reveals the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now I want to briefly then consider four observations and applications from His rebuke here. And I'm going to go through these rather quickly. First is this. Holiness involves the whole person. Holiness involves the whole person. The basic idea of holiness in relation to God is this, that He is separate from His creation and His essential being, and that He is separate from all sin. That's the general idea of God's holiness. That he is separate from all sin is repeated throughout Scripture most clearly by the Apostle John that in him is in light or that he is light and in him there is no darkness at all. There is nothing unpure within God. Indeed, whatever is unpure is measured against the purity of God himself. It is to say he is holy. Now the fundamental idea then of God's people is that they were called out by God to be a holy nation set apart to the Lord. He commanded them, you are to be holy then as I am holy. We read that in Leviticus 11. So in relation to God's people, again, this included ritualistic holiness and ethical holiness, moral holiness, spiritual holiness to God. But it was the latter, the ethical and the moral and spiritual holiness that was primary in God's law. It wasn't an either or, but it was a both and you were to do both. But the primary issue in the law were the moral demands of the law. This is strikingly seen in Isaiah. You remember the vision, Isaiah 6, that God gave to this prophet of God. He saw the Lord in his temple, the train of his robe spilling out, the glory all around him, the seraphim uh, flying around him, singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of your glory. And when Isaiah sees this vision, what is he immediately stuck with? Ah! I didn't wash the dishes in my hands before offering the sacrifice. Is that what he said? 
Oh, wow, I forgot to wash my garments the other day. Those are all the ritualistic aspects. What was Isaiah struck with when he was in the presence of God? His moral uncleanness. He said, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. In other words, when standing before a holy God, those external minutia is not what is going to grip the heart and the soul. When you stand in the presence of God, what is immediately pressed upon the soul is not how many dishes you ceremonially washed, how many services you attended, how many good deeds may have been done or whatever. What is immediately pressed upon the soul is your moral state before a holy God. Very similar to what Paul said, wretched man that I am, who will free him from this body of death? The nearer he got to the Lord, the more he understood his wretchedness and need of grace. Now the point of all this is this, that the holiness we owe to the Lord is not something that stops at external activity or religious duty. It is a matter of the whole person. It is a matter of the whole person. When God says, be holy as I am holy, he doesn't mean, obviously, go to more church services. He means the whole person is to be holy. The whole person is to reflect his holiness in body, in spirit, in thoughts, and in life. Paul picks up on this in 2 Corinthians 7.1. Let me just read a couple of verses to you. 2 Corinthians 7.1, speaking to the church, he says, Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. He says it most fully, I guess, in Romans 12, 1-2. He says this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice, acceptable to God as your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Of your mind. That is that every part of our body, everything that is a part of our humanness is offered to God in worship as a holy and acceptable sacrifice. We lay it at His feet as an act of worship. And in fact, we won't turn there, but in Hebrews 10, 5-7, that is exactly what Christ modeled for us. He had received a body, He said, in order to do Thy will. To do Your will. And He did it perfectly. So first of all, holiness then is a matter of the whole person. Secondly, we would observe this. That holiness is a matter of your affections and what you delight in. Holiness includes and even has as its heart a matter of your affections and what you delight in. Holiness includes external acts, the things we do. There is an outward and visible aspect to a holy life, obviously. But it's much more than that. Because everything we do, as again Jesus is confronting, can come from a wrong heart. We can do all of the externals and yet have a wrong heart. So Jesus is aiming at something much deeper here in the essence of true holiness. Our desires. Our desires. Now negatively, he draws that out for these leaders by saying, inwardly you have greed, self-indulgence, hypocrisy, and lawlessness. In other words, at your very heart, you're not wanting to please God, but you're wanting to indulge yourself. Whether it be through the praise of men, whether it be through immoral and lustful delights in your heart that are contrary to the holiness of God, whatever it is, your goal is to please yourself and not God. Let me make this just brief observation. 
that the true vileness of our sin, the true vileness and wickedness of our sin is not in the acts themselves so much as it is the inner enjoyment and pleasure that we find in them. Therefore, one cannot commit the act and yet find an inner enjoyment or satisfaction in the heart by the thought of it, which bears the same condemnation and guilt. In 2 Thessalonians 2.12, when he describes the fallenness of man, he says this, those who took pleasure in wickedness. It was not only that they committed wicked deeds, it's that it came out of a heart that delighted in wickedness, that loved wickedness, and that found pleasure in the gratification of sin. So while they did not do externally, nor did they indulge in all of their sinful desires, the religious hypocrite does derive pleasure from that sin in their heart. While they did not sleep with every woman that passed by, they indulged with a lustful glance and a lustful look. While they did not openly steal and violently take from all of the people, they had hearts that were gripped by covetousness and greed, and they found every way that they could to do it. Though they did not go around murdering everybody that they disliked, they did foster a heart of bitterness and anger toward others. And that was the point of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. So in other words, their deadness and hypocrisy was marked by what they loved and what they delighted in. Now, coming from a positive angle, the converse is true also. That true holiness is marked by loving and treasuring righteousness. In other words, true holiness is not marked by what you do, but what do you love in your heart? What do you crave in your heart? What kind of things do you delight in internally? To give that um, picture of that from some of our from the Old Testament saints, Psalm 37, 4 says this, Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. I think one of the most beautiful pictures of that actually comes from Psalm 27. Just listen to verses 4 and verse 8. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. That is a holy heart. He delights in the law of God. He delights in the presence of God. He delights in the beauty of God. Verse 8. When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away from anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. This is a man who sought God, who delighted in Him. Christ put it in this way. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Those things that you value, those things that you hold dear, that will be manifest in your desires. In 1 John 2, he says, Do not love the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In Galatians 5.17, he puts it this way. He says, For the Spirit sets its desires against the flesh, and the flesh against the Spirit. What does he mark there? Your desires. Your desires. What do you love in? What do you, or what do you love and what do you delight in? A delight in God is the center of holiness. It is to delight in who God is, delight in His truth, delight in His glory, and to delight in His presence. A third point then. Sanctification or holiness involves the whole person. Holiness is measured most clearly by what it is that you internally delight in in your heart. And thirdly then, that the essence of sanctification is an increasing love for what is holy and a hatred of sin. 
The essence of sanctification is an increasing love for what is holy and a hatred of sin. This is, of course, something foreign to these leaders and to every religious hypocrite. To be sanctified is to be more like Christ. To be sanctified is to be more like Christ. The goal of our salvation is to be conformed to the image of His Son. To be conformed to the image of Christ. When we are glorified, we will be like Christ. We will see Him as He is. We will be pure as He is. Ours derived, His is own, but we will share in it. We will share in it. And the goal then of sanctification then is to be made more like Him. Now with that in mind, I want you to listen to this description. Just listen to it. It comes from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9. He says this, the writer does. Speaking of Christ, you have loved, or about Christ, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Now, in fact, this is drawn from Psalm 45. It is a psalm that celebrates the marriage of Israel's king, particularly the marriage of Solomon there. But Solomon was one of David's son. He was one of the Davidic kings, indeed the first Davidic king to sit on the throne after his father, David. And as a Davidic king, he was a forerunner to Christ. And yet the words, as they're applied here, go far beyond King Solomon and the celebration of him as a man. Because he failed in his love for righteousness and his hatred of lawlessness. Even his father David failed in his love for righteousness and his hatred for lawlessness. But where every human king failed, these were fulfilled in perfection in the person of Christ, the perfect and true king of Israel and of the world. And that's how the writer there applies it. Christ is the ultimate of this. He is the end of all of this. And he is one who loved righteousness and he hated lawlessness. Now Christ then, being the perfect image of God, is a model of holiness lived out in humanity. A model for us. A model for us. Put another way, holiness has in as its essence an inner love for holiness. The love for holiness is equaled then by a hatred of sin. You understand? If we love holiness, we will hate sin within us. What then does it mean to be sanctified and to increase in holiness? It means that we have an increasing love for the truth. It means we have an increasing love for His Word. And like a newborn babe, we long for the pure milk of the Word because we have tasted His kindness and His grace in Christ. It means we will be more desirous of His presence in prayer. It means that we will be more desirous of His presence to ultimately be with Him. Like Paul, who longed to lay hold of that for which he was laid hold of in Christ. He longed to be with Him. We will have greater submission of our hearts to His commands and a greater desire to do what pleases Him. Paul said that he sought only to do what pleases Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.9, that we should do everything for His pleasure. It is a delight in eternal things and a distancing and diminishing delight in the things of this world. We read it earlier. That there is an increasing love for those things that are particular to the glory of God. And there is a diminishing interest in the things that are here on earth. There is a heart set apart to God. That is what it means then to grow in holiness. It is to set our mind on things above, not on the things that are here on earth. 
And why? On the things above. Because as Paul says in Colossians 3, that's where Christ is. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, we will be revealed with Him. And so everything in our life should be aimed towards that glorious day and in line with those glorious realities. Let me make a footnote here too before we go on to the next thing. Sanctification cannot happen then merely by external measures taken against the flesh. And I'll just say this quickly. That means then we can't fight sin simply by being hard on our bodies. We can't fight sin simply by doing more. We fight sin by loving Christ more, submitting to the Spirit, and having that fruit of the Spirit grow in us by increasing in our love for Christ. If you want to grow in holiness, yes, there are disciplines that we put into place, but all of those have as their end a deepening knowledge and communion with Christ by the Spirit and with His Father. So the singing of songs and service and all of those things, giving of tithes, are meaningful inasmuch as they are part of a whole life that is seeking God and delighting in Christ. Let me make one fourth point here on this. That the necessity, all of this requires regeneration in the ministry of the Spirit. All of this requires regeneration in the ministry of the Spirit. Every person comes into this world no different than the Pharisees who are here being rebuked by the Lord Jesus. We come into this world indulging our sin and with the desire to indulge our sin. Listen to how he describes spiritual death in verse 3 of Ephesians 2. Among them we too all formerly lived, how did we live? In the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Do you see the language he uses there? Lusting, indulging, desires. And we all come into this world at one level or another doing exactly those things. Some to an extreme end of open wickedness. Some more like these Pharisees. It's only in our heart and clouded by an external life of righteousness that isn't matched with a hatred of sin in the heart. But that's how we come into this world. And the reality of sin's domination cannot be removed by religion or moral reform. It can be lessened in its intensity. People can make moral reform. People can go from being a drunkard to not being a drunkard. To being a drug addict to not being a drug addict. Sin in that level can be dealt with at some measure because of the common grace of God as He enables us to do that. We see that, we won't turn there, in Matthew 12. He says, you were a nation marked by wickedness, but now you're like a man who's clean and swept his house, but you have more demons in you than you had before. Why? Because it's clouded over by a false righteousness. You're in an even worse state in many ways. So there is... There is a certain level of change that we can accomplish in human effort that is not sanctification and that is not a genuine mark of salvation. What we cannot do of our own and what we cannot do by any human effort is change the inner desires of our heart to go to loving God and to loving holiness. We cannot, by our own effort, come to see the beauty of Christ and the glory of God in the face of Christ. We cannot come to that on our own. That is why Jesus said to Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, you must be what? You must be born again. You must be born again. You need a sovereign work of God the Spirit in your heart to transform you. That is called in theological terms regeneration. It is to be made new, to be given spiritual life. I'm going to mention these because we don't have time. 
And we want to prepare for the Lord's table here. Ezekiel 36, what was the anticipation? That God will remove a stony heart and he will give you a heart of flesh. He will put his spirit in you so that you will no longer be averse to obeying his laws, but you will gladly obey him. In the language of the New Testament, you will come with a childlike faith, a humble love and dependence on God and Christ. Paul put it this way. That behold, old things have passed away, 2 Corinthians 5.17, and all things have become new. There is a newness to life in the reality of regeneration, in this specific ministry of the Holy Spirit. That means when you have spiritual life, your desires change. You go from not being convicted over sin to being devastated by the sin in your heart before a holy God. You go from not delighting in His presence to delighting in His presence. Indeed, you receive, as it were, a new set of eyes by which you see the world and truth and Christ and God and eternity and death and relationships and everything. It is a complete new transformation. New delights, new loves, new hopes, new desires that are all wrapped up in the glory of God and in Christ and in His Word. And yet... Jesus still calls them to repentance. Look at verse 27. Or excuse me, look at verse 28 or 26. I'll get there. Verse 26. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. And this is so gracious of God because He's not just leaving them in this case in their sin. He's also calling them to repentance. In other words, you are condemned, He's telling them, but would that God would you be saved. God would that you would repent, that you would turn. Of course, this is not something that can be done in your own effort, but it does not change the command of God. If you try to do this in your own effort, you'll be led to hopelessness and despondency and despair, as many have been. But it is, the command is made to make us feel our inability and to cry out to God for grace. To cry out to God for the enabling power. When we see what's required of us from the heart before God, the sinner should feel that they are undone. And be made all the more to implore God for His mercy and for His grace and for His enabling ability. His enabling ability to do that. In Deuteronomy 10.16, God said through Moses, circumcise your heart. But then He later acknowledges and said, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, so that you may live. You say, how do I change the affections and the desires of my heart? And the answer is, you can't, but you must. Therefore, implore the grace and the mercy of God in Christ. Implore Him and seek Him. Our inability should make us feel our need for grace to rely on Him alone while making every effort on our part to pursue Christ. Of course, they did not do that and they would not. And so he ends with a very simple picture of their hypocrisy. He says in verse 28 or verse 27, For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and uncleanliness. Outwardly you appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 
The most likely, likely picture here is of travelers traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover. Those in surrounding villages would sometimes paint these tombstones white so they could be easily marked so the travelers would not come into contact with them and become unclean for temple worship. That's the most likely scenario here. And those tombs, when they were painted and they glistened in the afternoon sun, appeared beautiful. But what he's saying is they appear beautiful, but what is inside them is all uncleanliness and filth. Their beauty betrays their true nature. They are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. He says, you as a religious hypocrite and all of those who fall in this Same condemnation are just like that. You live in a false world that is untrue. Untrue. You have the appearance of life like a cloak, but it hides the reality of death in your heart. So this morning, we are in obedience to Christ's command and instruction. We're doing an external act. He commanded us to do this. We are to remember Him by taking bread and by taking wine or Juice that represents the red color of blood. And to remember his blood spilt for us. His violent death. However, these elements themselves are representative of these realities. And our taking them is to be representative of the internal realities of our heart. In other words, what these represent connects, if done in truth, with your heart that fully embraces Christ, the Son incarnate, crucified, buried, risen, And returning. It's representative of our trust in Him and our love for Him, of our communion with Him and His Father and His people by the Spirit, and not only in the moment of taking them, but as the pattern of our life, as the mark of our life. When we take these elements, not only are we confessing that, we're also saying that I too hate the sin that crucified Christ and in pursuing holiness in my life. They're saying that I too am giving testimony that by the Spirit of God in me, I am putting to death the deeds of the flesh and I am pursuing to honor Christ in my thoughts and my affections and in my life. We're making that commitment in remembrance of what He did to accomplish the ability for us to do that. The forgiveness of our sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Conversely, to take these elements without that as a true reality of your heart is to mirror the Pharisees whom Jesus condemns here and to participate in the judgment of woe. Indeed, Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 11, it is to eat and drink condemnation to ourselves. So I would pray that that is not the case for those here or anyone here, but that it is for us a time to delight in His mercy and recommit ourselves in joy of our salvation to honor Him and love Him with our lives. I'll pray and then the men will pass out the elements. Our great God, we do thank you for your mercy to us. We thank you that we are not left helpless, as it were, having no hope in this world, but we have the demonstration of your infinite grace and love at the cross where you did send your Son who went there in our place, to suffer in our place, to rise in our place. We have the hope of Christ crucified, held up before men. We have the promise of the gospel that says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, call on His name, and you will be saved. And we have the assurance of those of us who have experienced that work 
of the Spirit who have entrusted our lives to you, that you keep us and hold us and preserve us. And one encouragement that you've given to us to remind us of that is this, your Lord's table. We ask now that as we remember your death for us, that we would truly worship you, commune with you, expose any sin in our heart that needs to be dealt with, whether it be in action or attitude. Will you expose it and give us, by your grace, that repentant heart that yields freshly and anew our lives before you to be sacrifices, expressions of love and gratitude. We pray this in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.